Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode two of Look Up. We are producing episodes bi-weekly, so this episode covers unit three in the class content. Let's go around and introduce ourselves and where we are recording from. Hey, I'm Daniel Chaveras out here in San Francisco. Uh, I'm Emily Dada, residing in San Jose. I'm Catherine Hamilton. I was one of the hosts for the podcast last week with Danny as well and Emily too. And I am here from Mountain View. And this is Nikki Gonzalez here, and, and I'm uh, really happy to be here today from De Anza College. The other part of the show that I'm super excited about is that we've got a special guest, Sunnyvale City Council member and De Anza political science instructor Alyssa Cisneros is with us today. She's going to talk about the powerful role that community college students can play and do play in building a society that really works for everybody. Wow, what a, what a week this has been. Um, we're recording this just after the January 6th anniversary of the attack on the Capitol. And we wanted to spend some time today kind of looking at how precarious democracy is. But I think we also want to note how we can take action um, to protect democracy and to improve our communities. So a year ago, we were swearing in this new president. We were ending what for a lot of us was an awful presidency that uh, was truly frightening. And um, there's a real uptick in violence in a lot of communities, especially I think targeted at people of color and for a lot of Asian Americans really walking around the society with a lot of fear. Why did they take control of the Capitol? They took control of the Capitol in an attempt to reinstall Donald Trump as the president of the United States after he lost the election by 7 million votes. The purported rationale for this coup attempt was this big lie that Trump's loss was the result of massive voter fraud. This wasn't this like partisan one-way discussion where Democrats were saying, oh yeah, he was elected and Republicans were saying not. Even the Republican-controlled Supreme Court rejected the argument. So you had this other thing that you need to understand, and that's that the DC riot and the coup attempt was also largely fueled by white supremacists. In today's podcast, we're going to explore some key questions to help us understand uh, January 6th, and in particular, how the media landscape in the United States set the stage for January 6th. I think what I'm interested in understanding from you all is how you understand this phenomenon in the anniversary of this uh, of the attacks. I think for me, it's kind of interesting, and you get to see a lot of how our world is changing pretty fast. You know, and information every day is just coming at us a mile a minute, and I don't know if our brains <laughs> were meant to handle that. Right. And a big thing that's happening is that like the information that we're getting, right. It's no longer uniform. The entire country isn't really getting the same set of information or the same shared set of facts that we're all kind of living by. A great resource that I felt with this was a, a movie that came out on Netflix pretty recently called The Social Dilemma. I'm not sure if y'all got a chance to see it. <laughs> really, but, really, really good, relevant movie that I think everybody should watch. It's, it's pretty cool. Um, for those who haven't seen it, they, they kind of set up the way that tech companies work with a cool metaphor. And 
these companies kind of have like a voodoo doll version of you. And they're kind of just poking you with information and seeing what you react to and what you don't, right? And if there's some mm-hmm. kind of event and news that might make one person really engaged, but say some opposing view that makes someone else really engaged, then you really kind of have a world where there's two different worlds of information that's going around, right? Everyone's not consuming the same thing. Why is that? What you you work in tech, you're surrounded in this world the analysis in that movie is they're just making a lot of money. That's their whole point. They don't care about any of the other consequences. They're just trying to make money. Do you think that's what's going on here? Yeah. Um, they call it surveillance capitalism in that really oh, wow. a lot of these companies, they actually get paid more money just by having something that watches you and, and they can sell that information or that information can be used to make their products better over time. Even televisions that you buy in your home, most of these TVs that you buy are spying on you because why wouldn't they? they they're smart. They can see what you're watching. And so they sell that information. Okay. So this is just a small thing, but I have to ask, cause I was just talking to somebody about this yesterday. We were like, you know, when you're talking to somebody and it's for something you've never searched up before, something you want to buy. And then an ad for it comes up on your phone and you did not search. I know that like Google's tracking my search history, but can you confirm or deny here on record, Danny, who works in tech, (laughs) is it listening to us to the extent that the ads have been listened through the microphone of my phone? Is this happening or are we crazy? (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. So what I will say is there are so many bits of tech you know, they have little eyeballs on us um, in our lives that they actually don't need microphones in our house to be able to figure that kind of thing out. Kat, do you have something else you wanted to share on this one? Sure. Well, firstly, that was not the answer I was hoping for, Danny. Um, And secondly, (laughs) on this thought train of how does misinformation get spread so thoroughly. I was listening to Jane Meyer's interview, which is, it starts on the third video for our signed readings this week. And there's three of them and it's focused on the Koch brothers, but she talks about how it's not just them two operating. They've really created this whole assembly line for how they're able to manufacture their power so thoroughly And I think part of that is totally relevant to how we're able to manufacture information so thoroughly that it doesn't just start with one specific group, but it's part of this whole pipeline. And so a few things that she mentioned are think tanks play a big role in distributing misinformation, especially on climate change when you can publish. What's a think tank? That's what I want to ask. So does anyone have information they can offer on how to describe a think tank? So look, millionaires and billionaires have set up endowed chairs at universities forever. And what the Koch brothers started doing much more systematically was giving money to major universities for specific kinds of research. And they would begin then to control what they could research and what they could write. And then so what you would have is like the Hoover Institute at Stanford, which is funded by uh, a lot of right-wing money or the Heritage Foundation, they begin to do quote-unquote research with a particular agenda that's a political agenda. Now, 
why does that matter? Well, when, the reason that it matters is that it begins to put an academic veneer on a certain perspective, on a certain kind of reality. When you put together a number of those positions, those chairs, they start to form what they call think tanks, right? So what's a think tank? A think tank is a group of usually academics, professional intellectuals who are paid to think about, figure out, study, analyze, publish, write, do scholarship for particular questions. In a democracy, you're supposed to have one person, one vote. If you're a millionaire or you're a billionaire and you can shape the entire discussion around a particular question and then limit the choices that people even imagine are possible, then it's not just your one little vote. You've now cut off all sorts of options and shaped a discussion in a way that overrules the interests of all those people who don't have the ability to pay for that kind of voice, that kind of academic legitimacy, that shaping of reality. So think tanks come to shape reality as we know it, um, and then to do it in a way that makes it look like it's more valid than the opinion of Joe on the street. I think the real impact of these academic institutions is the framing of basic questions and worldviews so that we're not even asking questions about compelling issues. Or alternatively, we're putting into doubt basic pieces of reality by lost train of thought. I might have just <laughs> had Nikki move this train of thought. Apologies. Um, so I guess what you're saying is by questioning the very basis of questions like, is climate change real? Um, there is kind of a spread of, there is a creation of confusion that could potentially lead to ignorance that arises from these think tanks. Is that kind of what you're saying? I think that's exactly it, Emily. You know, Danny was talking about um, people not operating from the same fact base. And so we'll you know, you have these think tanks that do exactly what you just said, intentionally create ignorance and doubt, sometimes by challenging really basic stuff like, is climate change real? We should shift gears soon because we have with us um, a really special guest. We've got with us today, Alyssa Cisneros, who is um, uh, the newest vice mayor of the city of Sunnyvale. She's a city council member in the city of, uh, in the city hey. of Sunnyvale. Welcome. Alyssa's super special to us at De Anza because she's a De Anza alum. You know, she was a student at De Anza a decade ago. Alyssa is not only a city council member in the city of Sunnyvale, but she's also a professor of political science at De Anza College. Welcome, Alyssa. Thank you, Nikki. Happy to be on your show. Really good to have you here. Could you just give us a little bit of background here? What was your path from being a student to being an elected official and a professor? Yeah, so from being a student, and forgive me, uh, my daughter is making herself a bowl of cereal because one dinner is not enough, so there may be some background noise, but um, 
I said daughter, I had that daughter when I was 19 years old and I graduated from high school. Didn't really thinking I was going to, didn't think I was going to go to college really, you know, but bounced from job to job. Life was real hard. And, uh, you know, I kind of came to the conclusion eventually that my life was hard, not because I wasn't smart, um, and wasn't capable of doing more things, but because there were things in society that would, that hold me and other people who were also in line to get food stamps back. So I was more interested in politics. A friend got me a job on a campaign for um, a very, you know, little known candidate, kind of dark horse candidate named Barack Obama in 2007. And uh, that went exactly as well as it possibly could have. Uh, And I ended up making a career out of it. Um, I'd been working professionally in a field organizing and political organizing um, for a couple of years before I decided to go to De Anza to get a college degree. Um, And we are so glad you did. You were elected about a little more than a year ago um, Mm -hmm. and you were sworn in, you came into office, you were sworn in right around the time of that January 6th coup attempt in DC. You've been listening in on the earlier parts of our conversation at the local level, Alyssa, what's the relevance of this January 6th anniversary? Well, there are two ways that I think about that. And the immediate one was, um, it was mentioned earlier, like, how did you feel that day? And I mean, the feeling for somebody who's about to become an elected official, who's working in government on that day, it was terrifying because you saw that happen. You didn't know if that was just going to proliferate. And, and happen on the local level, if that was going to happen in our state capital, if that was going to happen locally. That in itself was scary, thinking about how vulnerable we really can be and really are um, to extremism and how that can, it jumps right off of Twitter and right into your face like that. Um, it's a reality check on, on the dire uh, situation that we find ourselves in. And, and secondly, uh, recognizing that the reason why a lot of the people were there on January 6th and and the motivations that a lot of the people who support them have, have to do with um, resentments that start on the local level. And I can see them every day at my job. So it starts off as as things like uh, like nimbyism, even people being scared of, um, oh, we might become urban here. What does urban mean? Oh, no. But if we have more people live in this community, maybe, you know, Black and Latino families who don't care about their kids' educations, maybe they'll move into this neighborhood and drive our school rate, like, rankings down. And it's stuff like that. And you get this white resentment that builds and builds and builds. And then it's seized upon by these powers that look to capitalize off of that resentment uh, through media. and, And then it turns into this. Let me ask you just explicitly you you teach politics at De Anza College I know you teach this book the yes. some of us by Heather McGee mm-hmm. and she brings an analysis of race to a lot of different questions if you were Heather McGee what do you think you would say about January 6th the people who denied that Joe Biden was elected and were spurned on to continue with this kind of right-wing activism what got them there it's this racial resentment that Uh, had been stoked throughout the Trump administration and had been shown to them as being present in their everyday lives. The zero-sum game relates also to the replacement theory thinking, you know, people of color are replacing white people. That's bad. 
we have to do something about this. This is a fundamental problem in our society. And so when Heather McGee analyzes that, the, the politics of racial resentment and the zero uh, sum game, that's what makes me think about uh, January 6th a lot. Why do you think some white nationalists think that they're being replaced? What does that even mean? Well, because the population, uh, the, the white, 100% white people population is going down, whereas people who are of more one or more races is going up. So that is a statistical trend in the United States. There but why more... does that even matter? What, what, how does that affect the life of a white person? We're talking about the media, right? The media and other outlets explicitly from the last administration is like, these people are taking something from you. These welfare recipients who they demonize as being black or brown, they're taking something from you. They're taking your tax dollars, they're taking resources. Um, the argument over, oh, we're having affirmative action and into college. These kids are actively taking your kids' seats in college. They'll start to point to these examples. It's not true. That's not the phenomenon that's occurring at all, but it's a demon. It's a way to distract and say, these social problems, these struggles that you have in your everyday life are the fault of people of color, black and brown people, and not of these systems that profit from and benefit from your suffering. Alyssa, in, in, in looking at your political science class, your material is very similar to what we're teaching. What do you think the most important takeaway is for students out of the early material for the class on mass media. It's very important to always know where the information you got comes from because it's omnipresent. It's around you all the time. It's manufacturing your consent. And if you're in the class, you're gonna become familiar with that term. Your consent is being manufactured. So understanding, well, well, who is giving you this information? What's their motive? And how are they? how is somebody making money from me learning this or seeing this? Uh, because it's always there. That question is there. What agenda is there to have? Because then as you go through and learn about politics in any way or engage with politics in any way throughout your life, if you don't understand that that's an important thing to, to know, you're just going to kind of take it in passively. And then you see you're become susceptible to being part of that misinformation paradigm. So understanding that politics is all around us, political messaging is constant in our lives, and we need to know uh, exactly where it's coming from, who's profiting, and, and why is this being presented to me in the way it is. Those are the critical thinking skills necessary to understand and understand politics and also get involved with politics. You know, sometimes, Alyssa, people say about people like you in the classroom, well, you're just biased. You're not neutral at all. Aren't you supposed to be neutral as a professor? Yeah, yeah, no, and I, I have been. That has been something that's been said to me, absolutely. And what I say to that is there is no political information you will ever get in your entire life that's neutral. I'm just honest about it. And, and I hope that honesty is appreciated and I expect honesty in return, but the things that I decide are important for you to know are based off my values. The things that somebody who presents quote unquote neutral information, those are also based on values. And to pretend like we can go through politics as a topic and, and not have your own point of view be part of that is disingenuous. 
So yes, Mm -hmm. these are my political values. I'll lay it out on the table. You're welcome to have your own. (laughs) And I I don't rate you for not having my political values. You know, Alyssa, because I work with you on this project, I know that you're involved in a really special citizen activist training program at De Anza College that's focused specifically on empowering students in the community college world. What is that program and why are you excited about it in 60 seconds? Yeah, it's called Campus Camp. Campus Camp is where community college students can start making a difference in their community right now. Don't wait to be a grown up like me or like an older person and be a politician already, do it now. Uh, this is a training program that teaches you how to do politics by through learning hands-on and also uh, getting to hear from and interact with political geniuses, people who are so successful in their communities and who are excited to teach you how to do what they do. And that's the kind of opportunity you'll have to learn with not just people from De Anza, but from community college students all up and down the state. It is a one of a kind opportunity for a burgeoning organizer. You know, you, you got me at, I'm a grown up. (laughs) Okay. Alyssa, you've been fabulous. Thank you so much for being with us today. Um, If people wanted to get involved in the California Campus Camp, how do they do that? You sign up for Poly 17 or Poly 16 at De Anza. So it's simple, straightforward, like you would any other class. All right, good. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much, Alyssa. This was really great. It's great to talk with all of you. You know, one of the things that's super special about De Anza College is that we have a, an intense focus on civic engagement. We, we train a lot of community leaders. I mean, a lot, mayors, assembly members. In, in a lot of political science classes in particular, students are asked to engage in like voter registration or voter education. Sometimes students feel intimidated by this really new activity they've never done. Um, But each of you had your own experience with that work, specifically like the voter project. And I wanted to ask you all, when you were doing that project, did you find people to register to vote? And if you did, where did you find them? So what happened was I only found one person to register to vote, but they were a recent friend, I suppose, that I made at De Anza. I was like part of a group chat with this person um, and everyone in the group chat was talking about, about like voting and oh, being registered. I noticed that that one particular person was not talking about voting. So I was like, oh, maybe maybe they need to register. So how was that when, when you saw that that person didn't wasn't talking? Was it like uncomfortable for you? Because at least when I, when I was reaching out to all the folks that I was trying to, it was just I felt like I was pulling teeth out of myself. It was super hard. Yeah, it was definitely difficult to like have the courage to kind of be like, hey, so are you registered to vote? But I mean, they were they were very open to registering. And I feel like they also felt like they needed to and they just didn't get around to it. So, um, yeah, but it, it is definitely it is definitely an act of courage to ask, I think, to put yourself out there. That you that we think of it as an act of courage because it seems scary But here's this thing that is so basic to the functioning of a democracy. And somehow 
citizens have been trained into not talking about politics in a serious and respectful way. You know, I think a bit about, you know, going to the mall and then walking out and seeing someone with a clipboard, like a clipboard, right? Yeah. Or asking people to sign petitions. And, yeah. and granted, I, I know how many times I've said no <laughs> to signing what, what have you, or, or not even hearing yeah. Um, and I guess it's that that fear of like, oh, so people are going to start saying no to me, right? And that's a scary thing, hearing some kind of rejection. And oh, it's a fear of rejection. Yeah, for sure. I, I don't want to be the person with the clipboard. <laughs> right? Think but, of how interesting that is, that it's the fear of rejection. But think of how many places that trips you up in your life. And one of the things that we tell students is that if they do this work, they can master this work. Those skills are translatable across so many opportunities in their life, whether it's in their personal relationships, in pursuing a career and asking for a raise and organizing a union. Imagine if that's what it took, overcome your fear so that you could accomplish those things. Things aren't as scary as they seem on the outside, right? Like we kind of build up things to be skyscrapers. I'm like, I can't climb that. And you realize, oh, it's just it's it's a one-story tall building. Maybe you say a ladder or two, <laughs> you know, it will be okay. Yeah, and I think that that's probably true of any political engagement in the society. You know, we're going to wrap up here, and um, I think we need to always be asking this question: What are we doing this week to support our lives and our health so that we can? continue to be happy and productive and successful. Go back to kindergarten and take naps if you need to, and you have time to take naps. You know, if you're like feeling crappy or you're really sleep deprived, take a nap, maybe in the sun, stare at the sun. Don't stare at the sun. <laughs> I just made up a choice that when I go to bed and I set my alarms, I don't put my phone immediately next to my bed. Put it maybe on the other side of your room and it might feel uncomfortable, but I guarantee you it'll help you sleep and you won't probably feel as anxiety <laughs> driven as you, you do. It won't be so easy to hit snooze in the morning. That's my point. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Ask for help when you need help or when you feel overwhelmed. I don't know if some of us are people working at the same time that we're doing school and a lot of times it feels like we can't ask for help at work because then we're not going to be seen as hard workers. And that's like a total myth. A lot of times not as big of a deal as you make it up to be in your head to like say that you can't do something. That's the way I'm feeling right now. That's great. I think my health and wellness experiment this week is don't look at a tiny screen until you've seen the world. I used to like wake up, I grab my phone and then I'd read a doom scroll. And I've decided, no, don't do that. Don't touch that thing. Get out, have a little bit of calm. Go outside and touch grass. Step outside the door, outside of my house, and notice the wide world. This episode was created by Nikki Gonzalez-Yuen, Emily Dada, Daniel Tavares, and Catherine Hamilton, featuring Alyssa Cisneros. Audio production by Catherine Hamilton. And the music you're listening to is The Gentleman by Divkid. Thanks for tuning in, everyone.